Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis. We've been working through the book of Genesis kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter since September. And when I say we're in the middle, I mean we are in the middle. We're in in chapter 25 of 50, smack dab in the middle of this book of Genesis, this powerful book. Last week, Pastor Tyler uh, preached for us, and man, he was great, right? Um, God, praise him for, praise God for that word that we heard uh, from Pastor Tyler from Coa Brookline. Uh, He came and shared with us from, mainly from Genesis 24, although he briefly mentioned in Genesis 23 that uh, that was the chapter where Sarah died and Abraham bought a burial ground for her. Um, Not as much devotional material in Genesis 23 as there is in Genesis 24, and with Tyler coming and being a guest, I was like, why don't you take them both, you know, just to give them, not to where he has to make a whole sermon out of Sarah's death. That would have been cruel and unusual of me to assign that passage. Um, so I asked them to handle both of those. And the, so today we're handling Genesis 25. Now we didn't read the first half of that chapter and that might seem odd to some of you guys, but what happens in the first half of that chapter really has to do with a lot of things that we've already covered. But I would invite you to uh, join us for the Q&A after the worship gathering today if you have questions about these things. So quick summary, Abraham died at the ripe young age of 175. And that is something that we covered several weeks ago with the lifespans in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 5, we talked about the how people, what, what the Bible is talking about with those long lifespans. So I won't go into it all right now. I invite you to listen to the sermon or to come to the Q&A later and to hear. We also have a genealogy of Ishmael and, and uh, of, of Abraham. We also see Abraham married to his third wife. And uh, polygamy is also something that we have already covered in this series. And so if I uncovered each of these times, each time they pop up, I w- all I would be doing is talking about long lifespans and polygamy, okay? And that's, that, they happen all the time in Genesis. But I do invite you to, to come and ask questions if you didn't uh, make it for those earlier sermons in the series. So today we're really picking up, we, we only read this section at the end, but we're really picking up in verse 19. And if you have your Bibles, you can look with me. Um, verse 19, the story zooms in on Isaac. So there's this Hebrew word called toledot, and that means this is the generations of. And in Genesis, the book of Genesis is broken into 10 toledots, and each one represents a, a new marker. It like shows the, the changing of the story. So here we have the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son, and it gives a lot of information about what's happening here. And so as we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 19, here are just a few things to note. Abraham and Sarah, they're both dead. The story's moving on to Isaac. This is where we're going to be focusing for the foreseeable future next couple weeks, Isaac and his sons. And this passage in particular in Genesis 25 is 
one of, if not the most applicable passages in the entire book of Genesis for our generation. Exceedingly applicable. What we see happening here is something that each and every one of us can learn from, can gain wisdom from, and could, could point each of us to Christ more and more. This passage is about self-control, delayed gratification, and the nature of faith. It's a message that we all need to hear, including myself. Verse 19, read with me. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, this is something that we see happening over and over again in this passage, and it's, it's something that the Lord's reminding his chosen people, that they aren't the ones that make all this happen by themselves, but everything good comes from God. You guys say that with me. Everything good comes from God. And so he's saying, your wife, your, I've promised that Abraham's descendants will be like the stars of the sky, but nothing happens apart from my grace. And so even in this moment, Isaac has to pray for his wife so that she might become pregnant, so that God would have his people depend upon him every step of the way. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she, she went to inquire of the Lord. And what we discover in just a moment is that she's having twins. Earlier this week, I heard a description of having twins, um, that having twins in your womb is like having an angry octopus inside of you. And with you, when you have two hands, four hands, and four feet going every which direction, it's easy to understand why she might feel like something's wrong in there. And so she goes to the Lord and she inquires of him, and this is what the Lord says. And the Lord said to her, verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now when we read this, we're used to it. It's something that we're expecting. But to Rebecca, this would be shocking. The older will serve the younger. The normal pattern of this culture, as we've covered many times at this point, is that the older son gets everything. If you've had a daughter, she doesn't count. It goes to the oldest son in the family. And that's the way that the culture functions. And here, God is taking the cultural conventions of the day, and he's flipping them on his head. Again, he's already done this with, with Isaac and Ishmael. But here again, he's doing it with Jacob and Esau. And as we see, this actually communicates even better what his purposes are for flipping these conventions on their head. God loves to do this. And why does he do it? Why does he flip these conventions on their head? Why does the younger son often, in his story, take the inheritance and move the family forward? It's to show that God's favor doesn't depend upon our efforts. It doesn't depend upon our status. It doesn't 
depend upon our privilege. It doesn't depend upon our works and our goodness. It depends upon his grace and unmerited favor. It is all dependent upon his own good kindness and mercy to us. This is a theme that we're going to be revisiting in future weeks. Yes, we're going to dive into Romans 9. If you're uh, a regular, if if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're like, oh, that'll be fun. Uh, But that's not the message for today. We're going to dive into that in a few weeks. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. So Esau comes out. He's looking like a Benjamin Button Conan O'Brien as he exits the womb here. And this is really important because there's no mistaking these two babies. Like when you have twins, okay, no mother would actually admit this. But when you have twins, and those twins look exactly alike, you might have got them mixed up, okay? Like, it is possible where you might have named one of them Esau and one of them Jacob, and then maybe you, you messed up at some point. You know, you, you took off their clothes, they got in the bath, and then, yeah, now you're Esau and you're Jacob. I don't know. <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> That's not happening here, okay? Because Esau's body is hairy and red, and Jacob's is not. And so you're not getting these two mixed up. It's obvious who is the firstborn and who is the secondborn. Verse 27. Oh, excuse me. I I skipped 26. 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And it says that his brother was grabbing his heel. Now, the word Jacob sounds like the word for protect or it means the word heel. And it might be what you would think about like a rear guard protecting a a military uh, um, squadron as they uh, march in. And it actually came to be, I think that this is right from, from my research, is that the word came to be associated with trickster or, or cheater because of the way that Jacob behaves further in the story. But at this point, it means heel. So he's like, he's grabbing at Esau's heel, and that's why they named him Jacob. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Esau, he's, he's a man's man. He's hairy, and he doesn't shave. He hunts for his own food, and he eats his own meat. He lives in New Hampshire, and he drives a pickup truck. There's a lot of stickers on the truck, and he listens to Joe Rogan, okay? This is who Esau is. He's a manly man. Jacob, on the other hand, is a quiet guy. He would prefer to stay at home, to to live a little bit more domestic of a life. He's not a hunter. He is a shepherd, as we'll find out. He's a gentle guy. Shepherds are known as, as gentle people. They're also, they can be strong warriors. But Jacob, he's quite different from Esau. In verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh-oh. That's dysfunction, right? You're, 
you don't have to be a parent to know this basic rule that you cannot pick favorites, right? Amen? You cannot pick favorites. And here we have Isaac picking his favorite, Rebecca's picking her favorite. This is destined for destruction. This is not going to go well when you have favorites like this. Now, it's even worse because it tells you why Esau was Isaac's favorite. And why was Esau Isaac's favorite? It's because Isaac liked to eat the meat. You see, Isaac, he was ruled by his belly. And Esau would go out and he would hunt and he would bring in exotic game for Isaac to enjoy. And so that's why Isaac liked Esau more than Jacob. This is more than uh, Jacob. This is conditional love. This is a transactional relationship. This is not the way that parental love is supposed to be. And so oftentimes we're going to look at this theme next week, that sin of your parents, it can mess you up, but then we often repeat that same sin. Because Isaac was a man ruled by his belly, and so was Esau, a man ruled by his belly. Isaac's love is self-centered. Isaac loves Esau for what he can do for him. Verse 29, when once, this is where we came to our scripture reading, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, I'm going to try not to do an accent here, okay? Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name means, it was called Edom. It's another word for red, okay? So Esau is just the red man. He's, he's uh, named it twice. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. All right. Dysfunctional families make dysfunctional children, okay? There are no heroes in this story. This is a story where basically it's like, don't emulate anyone in this story. Don't, don't be like anyone here. What, what do they do to get what they want? Esau is impulsive. He sees what he wants, and he wants to take it at that moment. Jacob is manipulative. So he sees what he wants down the road and he puts together the perfect set of circumstances to get the thing that he wants. Jacob uses his brains to get what he wants. Esau uses his bronze to get what he wants. Jacob was willing to play the long, play, long game at the expense of his brother and he used Esau's impulsiveness for his advantage. Esau was completely unwilling to delay his gratification. He saw something he wanted, and he wasn't able to deny himself, no matter the consequences. He went after it. Friends, how do you get what you want? That's the question for today. How do you get what you want? Are you an impulsive person? Do you see something and get it? Are you a conniving, manipulative person who will hatch a scheme to get what they want? Maybe not today, but down the road. 
After this story, we spend a lot of time with Jacob. Okay. Jacob is the chosen son. He's the younger. He's the one that the, the story's going to follow. We'll see Esau again, but we're spending a lot of time with Jacob after the story. And so today, we're going to focus on Esau and the sin of Esau, but don't worry. We're going to hit you manipulators at another time, okay? Here's what I want you to see. Faith is all about delaying gratification. Faith and delaying gratification, they go hand in hand. True faith is always about deferring the immediate in favor of the eternal. True faith is about deferring the immediate in favor of the eternal. Faith doesn't just look at today, but it looks forward to something better. If a preacher ever gets in front of you and says, God wants you to live your best life now, if you just pray to him and maybe send me a little bit of money, God will bless you, you'll have immeasurable riches. What you should do is turn off the television because this is obviously someone you're watching on TV and never believe a word out of that mouth again. That is a snake, oil, a snake oil salesman. He is not a servant of God. That is not the gospel. That is a false gospel. This person is a messenger from Satan and have nothing to do with him. Esau wants instant gratification. Esau was a man driven by his desires. He followed in the footsteps of his ancestors, Adam and Eve. He saw and he looked at it, and it looked good, and so he took it. He didn't care about the consequences. He wasn't thinking about such things. He lived in the moment. Friends, Esau was set up for life. At this point, Isaac still had every intention to give his entire estate, everything, to Esau. He was set up for life. He was a trust fund kid. but he traded it all. And what did he trade it for? A momentary satisfaction, a temporary joy. And then he moved on. In 1972, there was a really famous psychological study called the, the Stanford Marshmallow Study. Uh, some of you are, are familiar with this. And because of this study, psychologists have actually concluded that the ability to delay gratification is one of the most important characteristics to success in life. So here's how it would work. The researchers had access to the daycare at uh, Stanford, and they had children come into a room one by one, and they would explain to the child, they would sit them down and, and, and put a marshmallow in front of the child, and they would offer the child a deal. And they would say, here's the deal. You, I'm about to leave, and you can eat the marshmallow at any point you want. But if you wait until I get back, I'll give you another marshmallow. I'll double your reward if you wait until I get back. And so you can imagine they videotaped the children as they uh, did this. And so uh, the, the researcher would leave, and some of the children, the moment the door closed, give me that marshmallow. And then they just sit there. Uh, and nothing for the next 10, 15 minutes. 
Many of the other children would bounce up and down in their seat. They would resist the temptation, but they could not wait the entire time. And then some of the children actually were able to put off the temptation, to resist it the entire time, and they waited until the researcher came back, and the researcher gave them another marshmallow. They were rewarded for their delayed gratification. Now that's interesting, but the really interesting part of this story is the fact that they kept up with these children throughout their life. This was in 1972. I think that they might still be following up with the children that participated in the original study. And so they have almost 50, they have 50 years of research there to follow these children. They would be in their mid-50s today. Anybody here in that study? I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> and what they found is that the children who refused to eat the marshmallow, the ones that waited to have double the reward, what they found is that those children scored higher SAT scores, that they have lower levels of substance abuse, that they have a lower likelihood of obesity, that they have better responses to stress. They have all of these advantages. They came with the ability to delay gratification. This all led the researchers to conclude that the ability to resist immediate gratification is directly tied to success in life. Don't you love it when science proves something that the Bible already teaches? It's just, it's just great. Now, there was a second study done at the University of Rochester um, several years later, and they wanted to repeat the study of the Stanford uh, scientists, but they wanted to add a little twist. What they did is they brought in the children first, and they, would, they split the children into two separate groups, and one group was given reliable experiences from the researchers, and the other group was given unreliable, 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 uh, uh, whichever one that is, um, experiences with the researchers. And so the group that uh, could not trust the researchers, uh, they would be told by the researchers, hey, I'm gonna give you uh, here's some crayons. I'm going to give you a new box of crayons if you can hang out for five minutes without touching these crayons. And then the researcher would come back in, no more crayons for him. And so that child would start to develop a mistrust of the researcher. And it's not difficult to, to see that whenever they did that, they had these repeated experiences where one group can trust the researchers and the other group cannot trust the researchers. That the group that was given reliable experiences with the researchers, where the researchers did what they said, where they gave the crayons after they promised to give the crayons, this group trusted them and they were four times more likely to wait until the researcher returned to give them the bonus marshmallow. When this group, on the other hand, didn't trust the researchers. And so they wouldn't, they wouldn't wait. They would just go ahead and eat the marshmallow. Why wait? When I tell you that you can delay your gratification today because you can trust in God, because he's good and because he's faithful and because he always lives up to his promises, because he cares for you, many of you are like these kids with the bad researchers, the unreliable experiences. You say, why would you say that I can trust in him? I did that before, it didn't work out for me. I don't trust in him, he's proven himself unfaithful. That's how many of us feel. But friends, 
Here's the reality. If you knew all the things that God knows, you would always ask for all the things that he gives. He cares for you. He loves you. And every moment in your life has led to this moment that we are in right now. You are here for a reason. Now, I don't know what you've been going through. I don't know what experience you've had with the Lord. But there's a million set, a set of a million different circumstances that have led you to this exact moment. And you are here under the sound of my voice in this room. And the Lord has been faithful enough to get you here. And he will be faithful enough to move you to the next part of life. He is faithful. He is good. Church, still your soul for just a moment. The same God that directed your past is guiding your future. He cares. He cares. And he's brought you this far and he'll take you the rest of the way. Verse 34. When Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, look at that for a second. Esau came in. He said, what's that rich, meaty, red stew that you're eating? I want some of that right now. Give it to me. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I don't care about that. I just want that stew. And now, what does Jacob give him? It's not the rich, meaty stew. It's a bowl of lentil soup. That's not satisfying. I I don't care how you feel about lentils. It's just not satisfying. Isn't that the way it is oftentimes? That the things that we think will satisfy us are almost always never as good as what we imagine them to be. And then it says, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. If that's not a description of disappointment, I don't know what is. His silence is eerie. He just eats, he drinks, he gets up, and he walks out. He doesn't say anything. I just imagine him eating in silence, getting up, walking his own way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Another translation puts it like this. It says, Esau treated his rights as the firstborn with contempt. He treated them flippantly, like a teenager with his, with his dad's car keys. Flippantly, with contempt. He doesn't care about this thing of value. Esau didn't take this whole encounter seriously. He didn't actually think that he was giving away his birthright. We know that. Because in a few chapters, when it comes time to actually receive the inheritance, Esau isn't like, oh yeah, I gave mine to Jacob a long time ago. No, he fights tooth and nail for it. He wants his inheritance. He doesn't think that he's being serious right now. He's just using words to get what he wants because he's impulsive. Friends, this passage is so easy to apply. It's so easy to apply to our lives. How easy is it for us to give up our privileged status as children of God 
inheritors of the new heavens and the new earth for just measly, momentary delights. How easy is that for us? How easy is it for you to grab a bowl of lentil soup instead of hoping for the future inheritance of God? Christians have more fuel for delayed gratification than anyone else because we have a true promise from God that we will inherit the earth, that we will inherit all the things that it means to be a child of God, that they belong to us, all we must do is wait. That grand inheritance that we look forward to, this is what faith is all about. True faith is about deferring the immediate in favor of the eternal. True faith is about deferring the immediate in favor of the eternal. As we, as we think about applying this and, and, and wrap things up, now I'm, I'm doing that in the classic preacher sense and I still have like two pages of notes. Um, let's flip over to Ch- Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two. And I think that this helps us to apply this very well. Titus is after Second Timothy for anybody looking for it. Titus chapter two, verse 11, so helpful, 11 through 13. Let's read this together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the day-to-day life of the Christian is to delay the immediate in favor of waiting on the eternal. That is the day-to-day life. That's what we're doing each each and every day. We're delaying immediate in favor of the eternal. We wait for the day that Jesus would return. But how many people have refused to delay immediate sexual gratification and instead chosen the lentil stew or pornography or masturbation, fornication or adultery? How many people are enslaved to the impulsive and instant satisfaction that we have with addiction to alcohol, gambling or shopping? These each feel good at the moment, but in the long term, they're lentil stew. How many people are enslaved to these things? Maybe maybe it's not even a taboo sin. Maybe you're one of these people that that you don't struggle with alcohol, you don't struggle with the sexual sins, but if someone crosses you, if someone does something unjust or unfair to you, you will give them a piece of your mind rather quickly, and it feels good. We trade in that momentary joy of an outburst of anger as a piece of lentil stew. It feels good in the moment, but then you realize that you just blew up an image bearer of God. You didn't give grace. That instant satisfaction of a real anger outburst can sure feel good temporarily, but it's not being the meek who will inherit the earth 
It's not being forgiving as Christ has been forgiven to us. A few years ago, actually it wasn't a few years ago, maybe it was like a year ago, uh, I realized a pattern in my life uh, where I was just lacking self-control and it was revealing uh, things in my heart that I wasn't familiar with. And uh, basically what was happening is when you have young children, the hardest time of the day is like the hour before bedtime because your kids have more energy in that one hour than the rest of the hours combined. I don't know how it works, but they just start running laps and all you want to do is put them in their beds, okay? So you can like zone out for a few minutes or talk to your spouse or watch Netflix or whatever you're gonna do. And so what I found that I was doing during these times is my kids were going nuts. I was trying to, you know, be a good dad and corral them. But every time I walked through the kitchen, which was often because I'm chasing children, running loops around my house, I would just grab another, another piece of chocolate or another cookie. And you know, there's nothing wrong with a Thin Mint. But when you've eaten two sleeves of Thin Mints as you corral your children into bed, you might have a problem. And I found myself in this problem, not just once, but it was like a nightly thing. I was just in the moment getting that instant satisfaction of a piece of chocolate. Like, oh, I, I didn't even realize what I was doing. I was feeling stressed. I didn't even realize I was feeling stressed. And I was just trying to calm the stress with a little piece of chocolate. I was just trying to calm it down. This impulsive eating thing, it's, it's really acceptable in our culture. You might look at this and be like, that's not a big deal. But um, what is it that got Esau in trouble? But impulsive eating, okay? His belly became his God. There is a biblical word for it, and it's gluttony. And I was participating in it. I was lacking self-control. And you know what? My lack of self-control in that moment was bleeding into the other moments in life. So this passage tells us that we are being trained, that the grace of God has appeared. Let's look at it again, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly wisdom. Well, when you're training for something, you start with the easier task and you work yourself up, right? So if you're trying to teach someone how to do a pull-up, what are you gonna do? They're gonna learn by using a little bit of their legs first. Then they might put a band on the pull-up bar and then let that help them to get over the bar. Then they might jump and pull and do a negative or something like that. You do easier things to lead up to the more difficult thing. And friends, if I'm not training myself in all things, training myself in godliness, training myself even with something as simple as eating chocolate, now that I notice that I'm doing this thing that's distracting me from the moment, if I'm not training myself in these small things, being faithful in the small things, I am not going to be ready when the big temptation comes. If we aren't training ourselves in all things, what are we gonna do when the opportunity for adultery, when the opportunity for drunkenness, when the opportunity to ruin our lives in one way or another comes around? We have to be faithful in all the things. Your alcohol consumption, your media consumption, your cookie consumption, they're all training you to be self-controlled in those bigger things in life. But get this, this is important. 
And I don't want you to miss this. It's, it's the first verse again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. So what's training us? Are we training ourselves? No. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what is doing the training but the grace of God? The grace of God is doing the training. So I am obedient in the moment. I'm delaying the immediate gratification because the grace of God has appeared. Because I have the hope of salvation, the other half of this verse. It's like, a, it's like he, he's, I love the way he wrote it. He wrote, grace of God, salvation for all people. Do these things, renounce worldly passions, renounce ungodliness, live self-controlled lives. And then what does he do? He goes back and he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, we don't earn that favor. He puts it in a grace sandwich, actually. The sandwich would be like a law sandwich and then grace is a bread, but you get what I'm saying. It's, it's sandwiched in there. Grace, let that motivate you to delay your gratification because he is kind to you and has given you all things and you have a glorious inheritance coming. And so that empowers us to deny self, to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus. We've all betrayed God. None of us would actually deserve the inheritance that we're longing for. And that's the point. It's not that you earn the inheritance. If it was up to you, you've already traded that thing in. You've already lost it. But through faith in Christ, we have the right of the firstborn. Through faith in Christ, Jesus the firstborn of all creation, the only begotten son of God. He had the ultimate birthright. Ultimate birthright. Lived with God through eternity past, yet he didn't treat his birthright flippantly. He didn't demand that his desires be satisfied. As Satan led him to the top of the mountain and said, I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow the knee to me. Jesus said, be gone, Satan. I don't want everything if it means I'm bowing my knee to you. Jesus said, I will give it all up. Lay my life down. My love isn't conditional upon what you can do for me. It's not a transactional relationship. No, I'm willing to lay it all down. He paid our penalty for our sin so that we might be united with him. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die so that we might receive the inheritance of God, so that the grace of God might appear to us, so that we might be able to have our hope in eternal things. And that hope in eternal things far outweighs the present things that we see. Our hope in eternal things far outweighs your immediate gratification. Jesus is the grace of God, the firstborn from among the dead. He gives us eternal life, not because of what we have done, but what, because of what he has done. And now we wait for it patiently. Hey, 
I just want to give you this. You can do it. Whatever you're facing, if you have Christ on your side, you can do it. It's not called dying to self unless it actually feels like you're dying a little bit, okay? And so whatever you're struggling with, whatever is demanding that you satisfy it, that's, that's how it feels, right? When we walk into that situation, what, whatever you struggle with, it demands that you satisfy it right now, and then you'll feel good. It's a promise, but it's just a lentil stew. Remember that. It's not actually going to satisfy you, but Jesus will. Amen. And whatever you are facing, you can get through it, not on your own strength, but through your own weakness as you wait for your glorious inheritance in heaven. Christ has promised you, and he is with you, and he'll help you through it all. You can do this, church, okay? I know you're thinking, eh, I encourage you, take those steps, whatever it is. Take one step of faithfulness. Let it be your first step in training, okay? Your first morning in boot camp. Training yourself for godliness because of what you've received from God. We wait patiently for the day when he'll return. We wait patiently for the day when he'll return and we'll recognize him as king again. And as we wait, we remember this through a sacred meal that we participate in each week. Father, we, we pray that uh, your grace would wow us this morning, that we would be reminded of the way that you have given us unmerited favor. The way that you've given us an, an eternal inheritance that far outweighs it all. And Father, may we be people that can delay immediate gratification, that can be trained in godliness, that can de delay the, the worldly desires and long for your coming kingdom and to seek to serve you and to help others the way that you have and to follow you and to die to ourselves because of what you've done for us as we wait for you to come again. And so God, as we receive this meal, I pray that anyone under the, the weight of conviction will just give that over to you at this moment. Come Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to work in our lives to give us that motivation to delay the temporary for the eternal. Give us that faith that we can trust in you to be faithful in all things. Help us to love you because you have first loved us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.